Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, Don. J.J., it's good to be back. You and I were just in San Diego. Yes, we were. And it is cold here. It's in the 20s. <laughs> yeah. And it was in the 70s. Yes. <laughs> there. So when I say good to be back, I really mean not so good <laughs> not to be as, back. Not so much good. Not so much good. <laughs> One of the fun things about traveling with you is you and I, unlike me and my wife, you and I will find the best Mexican food in yes, town. Yes. Me and my wife will find the best sushi food yeah. in town. Yes, I don't do sushi, but <laughs> yes, Mexican. And in San Diego, obviously, has pretty good stuff. So we went to one place that was really great. Had fried cheese. I mean, yeah, you can't yeah, really yeah. go wrong there. But my absolute favorite place in San Diego is called Tacos El Gordo. Tacos El Gordo, yes. which we didn't go to. We didn't go there. to. Well, you didn't go to. Oh, you went. Um, yeah, but oh, so man. if you go to Tacos El Gordo, like the last meal, if I was to die tomorrow. I would buy a ticket, and my last meal would be at Taco. Really, Gordo. not even talk to your family. You just go get a taco. I would talk not to even... him on the way. <laughs> meet, me, meet me at Taco. They would El want Gordo. me to be happy. Mom and Dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that should be what I do. I'd fly my whole family to Taco El Gordo, but they have this adobada and this sauce that. I talk up a lot with people. Like I always think, oh, I shouldn't say how great it is because when people get it, they're going to be disappointed, and nobody has ever been disappointed. It is unreal. It is the best food I've ever had. And when you go to this tiny little, it's I mean, it's a hole small restaurant. Wall. It's a, basically a hole in the wall. It's not real clean. You're standing in the line, but. The way I knew I was like, this was a good Mexican food place was that you walk in and there's all these off-duty mariachi bands that are eating there. <laughs> so like they go play at the other like Mexican restaurants and then, and then they, they go to the real at this one. It it's, is unreal. It's true. There was a you know, there was a sushi place around the corner from my house when I was living in Portland that it opened at five o'clock every day. At four o'clock there was a line around the block. Yeah. You just had to wait to get in. There's a place right near here in Nashville that our friend Thad takes us to that sells uh, you know, great Mexican food. And the Canless Brothers actually came and spent time with us from Canless Restaurant in Seattle. And they were like, take us to some of the best food. So we did Husk. We did some of the greater, yeah. you know, finer dining restaurants. But the place they loved the most was this hole in the wall <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> down the street where they took over a McDonald's and painted it orange. Uh-huh. And <laughs> That's basically what this is but in, here's in the San Diego. Point. Yeah. The point is the food is everything. Yeah. And a lot of us in our business, we've got to define what the food is. And we did this as a business at the beginning of this year, literally a matter of months ago as a business. We said, look, the food we serve is great marketing advice. Companies Period. are getting ripped off in their marketing because they haven't clarified their message. So basically, if you haven't clarified your message, it's like a monkey talking into a bullhorn. Yeah. You're just making the confusion louder. Yeah. And so we serve great marketing advice. And the reason that I had to do that and had to kind of join us all up says is because we were getting so good at customer service. Yeah. We, were, yeah. we, were actually, we would actually get together. How can we please our customers more? How can we serve our customers more? And I don't want to stop doing that. Yeah. But at the same time, I had to stop everybody and say, hey, we sell really good marketing advice. And so when we want to talk about changing our customers' lives, the frontline focus of this organization is to keep coming up with better and better marketing advice that actually works. That's the meal. And it's not like I want a hole-in-the-wall dirty restaurant that serves great <laughs> yeah. food. I want a great fine dining restaurant that serves great food. But bottom line is if you lose everything else and you have great food, they will still line up around the block. Yeah, and I think this happened to us a little bit, and it happens to a lot of businesses where started you're, growing. you're growing and you're getting bigger and you start getting excited about new things and all that other stuff is great, but it's 
it's peripheral when it comes to it's peripheral, yeah. your insurgent mission, the thing that your business is about. And you did. You actually you gathered us all together. You sat us down and you said, hey, we're doing great. We've been growing. All these things are happening, but this is what we do. And, and since then, that has really changed the way that we actually operate. Even there's on a, a new energy yeah. that we had when we started, and we never really lost it. Yeah, but we sort of got used to it. Yeah, <laughs> and I think it's important to return to what our interviewee today calls the founder's mentality. And it's not because yeah. I'm the founder; it's a mentality. Period. Whether yep. the founder's in the room or not that you return to. And it is this insurgent idea, understanding what we do, delivering quality at the basic level of what your business is actually about, creating this product and delivering it and freeing customers from this entanglement or whatever they're in. The reason that I brought all this up, the reason I asked you about the taco stand in San Diego is because it was this book that I think did this for us. I read it over Christmas break. We all took a couple weeks off. I read this book, and I could hardly wait to get back. Yeah, I filled up the whiteboard in the office during Christmas yeah. break with the stuff I wanted to talk about when we got back. So I am incredibly grateful for our interviewee today, Chris Zook, who wrote this book, The Founder's Mentality. And I don't want to – basically what it is is it's a mentality that will save your company. Yep. And I don't care if you're a $5 billion brand or if you're a sub-$5 million company, if you're a $100,000 startup – These are the three necessary elements of running a successful business, and they're going to deeply surprise you. Anyway, you and I both enjoyed this interview. I will gush about this book. It's the best business book I've read probably in at least two years. I can't think of the last business book that motivated me more than this one. The book, again, is called The Founder's Mentality. Co-author is Chris Zook. I don't want to wait anymore. I want you to hear from Chris. Here's my interview with Chris Zook. Chris, thanks for joining us on the Building a Story Brand podcast. Thanks very much. It's a great pleasure to be on. Listen, I got to tell you, The Founder's Mentality is my favorite business book for at least the last two years. This is a phenomenal book. And I shared with you a little off the air how it changed the life of our company, how I made some strategic decisions to return to the kind of framework that you're talking about. And we saw an increase in sales almost right away. And not just sales the morale behind my staff increased too because they had a stronger vision and a sense of purpose. You call it the founder's mentality, but really it's a, it's a way that a business operates returning to its roots. And uh, I can't thank you enough. It's honestly, an, it's an honor to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you. What an incredibly gratifying opening to a discussion. Well, tell me this. What is a founder's mentality? I've, I've read the book and I can kind of summarize it. But from your perspective, what is a founder's mentality? Sure. When we began our work about five years ago, we were on the track of answering a pretty straightforward question, which is, what is it about the way companies are built on the inside that lets them, in some cases, stay young and innovative and uh, attractive to the young uh, talent on the inside, as opposed to those that age prematurely? Mm. And we came across one amazing statistic as we were looking at the deep root causes of sustainable success in really any organization. And that is that when we took all the the major public companies in the Fortune 500 and we split them in a really simple way into those where the founder had uh, still managed to stay CEO or managed to stay very involved in the company, like on the board, like Phil Knight, or where the family was so deeply involved that the founder's fingerprints were still there. I guess a company like IKEA would be that that those companies 
performed 3.1 times, not mm. 3.1%, but 3.1 times better in total shareholder returns over a 15-year period than the companies where the fingerprints and shadow of the founders were long gone. And so we ended up calling the search and also the elements of how companies are built on the inside to stay successful on the outside, the founder's mentality. You know, our study wasn't about founders per se, you know, really only only one in 1,700 startups ever gets to $100 million and survives. You know, most founders fail. But we called it the founder's mentality uh, in terms of the elements of success, how businesses are built on the inside to sustain themselves on the outside. Well, before we get to defining what those elements are, because I found them fascinating, and and they're not what you would think, you actually say in the book, just like you just said, we found that the returns to shareholders in public companies where the founder is still involved are three times higher than other companies. The most consistent high performers exhibit the attributes of the founder's mentality four to five times more than the worst performers. Furthermore, we've determined that of the roughly one in 10 companies that achieve a decade of sustained and profitable growth, nearly two in three are governed by the founder's mentality. I can't help here but explain a little bit of of the backstory and the reason that I've got you on. One of my coaches sent me this book, and he sent it to me at a time when I'd kind of stepped back from a lot of the leadership role and was writing my own book. And I noticed that the more time I spent in the writing shed, the more time I, I tried to wrap up a book, which is necessary, and it's going to be great for the company's growth for me to, to have a, a new book out. But I noticed that morale kind of decreased around the office. The company felt like it sort of hit a lull. Overhead was going up. Sales were declining a little bit. The overall vision got lost. I think if you would stop my employees and say, why are we here? What are we doing? Who are we trying to help? You probably might have got three to four slightly correct answers, which means a loss of vision, a loss of definitive vision. I just wanted to say, I think that's what losing the founder's mentality actually looks like. If if anybody's listening and they're saying, well, what does this look like for, you know, you're talking about big companies. But if that's you, if somebody can come in from the outside and say to your employees, why do you guys exist? Uh, what insurgent mentality do you have? Who are you trying to fight here? And nobody knows the answers to those questions. It's probably because your influence as a leader has been put on the back burner. Would you agree with that? I, I, w- I would. I would agree with that. You know, I find that companies uh, often become focused on shorter and shorter term activities, hmm. and very often it's difficult for companies to st- and, and management teams to step back and ask themselves, you know, what really is uh, our founders' purpose? What is our insurgent purpose? Why are we doing this? And you know what? What we found was that the companies that uh, had the founders' mentality tended to be those that were the most focused. And right now, we find only 13% of people in America who work for businesses, only 1-3%, say they have any emotional connection or attachment to the business or to its special purpose. This is from a Gallup poll of uh, thousands and thousands of employees across America. And, you know, when that's true, uh, Bain research shows you are about five times less likely to offer a suggestion if you don't have any connection to the purpose or suggest a friend that they come to work there or invest your own time in helping a customer like delivering a package on the way home or taking a call on the weekend. And, you know, I think that's an enormous missed opportunity. You know, you can just see the difference right away or you can just feel it when you walk into companies like Nike 
where, you know, I'd say enormous percentage of people understand that it's about performance and they're very, very proud yeah. of their linkages to athletes or a company like SpaceX, you know, with an insurgent mission of putting people on other planets. But, you know, even your local restaurant that is dedicated to having, you know, the freshest food from the best farms and something special has its own insurgent mission. Over time, you know, businesses begin to lose that. They become just another bank, just another consulting firm, just another insurance company, just another law firm. One of the great predictions of how people feel is if you see a parking lot that's filled with a lot of cars pointing out, it means that when people get there in the morning, the first thing they're thinking about is how to get home, not what they're going to do at work that day. And, you know, that emotional core, it really is the soul of a business. And we found that was one of the three elements of the founder's mentality that was absolutely critical to internal health. Well, reading this book and implementing your strategy turned my company around really quickly. And also me finishing my book and being able to step back into a, a more day-to-day leadership role. And so I'm so grateful for it. Now, you talk later in the book about even if the founder is gone and not involved in the company anymore, it is very possible to return the founder's mentality to the heart of the organization. And so we'll get to that a little bit later. But at first, I want to define, these are the three elements that you say make up the founder's mentality. One is an insurgent mission. Two is an owner's mindset. And three is an obsession with the front line. What is an insurgent mission? Yeah, those are the three elements of the founder's mentality. And we looked at hundreds of different possible ways of thinking about the internal health of a company. Actually, just a a quick analogy. As an older guy, I take my health physicals pretty seriously. (laughs) And it's pretty pretty clear what people look at to look at your internal health. When you walk in the doctor's office, they look at your blood pressure and the trajectory of your weight, and they do various chemistries and so on. But, you know, for, for an organization or a company, it's really not that clear what the internal measures are of deep health for a business. It's clear on the outside, market share, profit, stock price, customer loyalty, but it's not that clear on the inside. So, yeah, just to comment on the three, number one, an insurgent mission. You know, almost every founder goes into their business with some special purpose. Uh, You did that. We did that at Bain & Company in the early days. We had a special view of consulting. Elon Musk, SpaceX does that, thinking about people on Mars. And that's a very motivating thing for people in the early stages of a business going up against much larger competitors with almost no resources. And it gives you an incredible uh, emotional boost to think that you're building something special, building something for the long term, and almost are at war against the standards of your industry on behalf of an underserved customer. But over time, companies become complex and they lose what they're about. So that's the essence of an insurgent mission, something that everyone in the company understands, makes it special, gives them pride, and reflects what they're building in the long term. Second element of the founder's mentality is what we called frontline obsession. You know, every founder was often either the first salesperson or, or, you know, like Les Wexner, who began the limited, now L Brands, was the person who slept in the store and turned the lights on in the morning or was the first product developer, like Michael Dell, assembling computers in his Mm. dorm room and parts. And, you know, over time, uh, businesses create layers, they create staff functions, and they often have many, many decisions made by people who have never served a customer, don't know customers by name, and don't understand and have intellectual curiosity about the ground level 
of a business. And, you know, when that happens, you begin to lose your ground-level instincts. And a lot of research at MIT has shown that way over 90% of product and service innovations ultimately come from detailed experiences with customers. And when you lose that intimacy, you know, you really lose something. Both the insurgent mission and frontline obsession, it sounds like they're connected to a sense of ownership. That when the individual who has ownership over the company and ownership over the customer experience, the further that person gets back, unless they've transferred ownership to other people, when that ownership gets lost from the customers, the person who owns the mission gets lost from the customers or is distanced from the customers, the company suffers. You actually say in here that on the front line, people are individually responsible and empowered to directly create value for the customers as an attribute of a healthy company. That somehow this founder who has the founder's mentality has transferred that mentality and that sense of ownership to frontline employees. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that is what I'm saying. Not only sense of ownership, but an intellectual curiosity about the details. One of the companies that I looked at uh, for the book and, and have known over the years is Oberoi Hotels, which a number of years got the award for the number one best luxury hotel chain in the world. You know, and it's an Indian chain. And amazingly, when you look at its origins, its founder, M.S. Oberoi, uh, three generations ago, his grandson now runs a business, Vikram Oberoi, began in the poorest area of rural India and bought a uh, ultimately bought a hotel that had been racked with cholera in World War II, and somehow amazingly built that into the number one luxury hotel chain in the world. But Vikram was telling me something that just was so emblematic of the founder's mentality aspect, the uh, frontline obsession, is, you know, he, he said even when he visited his grandfather, M.S., in his home at 10 in the morning on a Sunday, he would find him still then with uh, a stack of customer comment cards from all their hotels scratching notes on them about, about how to deal with the temperature of the tea or the problem with the bellman's uh, length of a bellman's trousers and just still love the detail at that point. And, you know, the, the opposite of that is an organization that builds up huge staff where most decisions are made by people who have never served a customer, worked in a factory, or designed a product. When that happens, you're really, really vulnerable to younger, hungry insurgent uh, competitors, and you see it all the time. You know, look at how Sony lost out uh, the uh, small video camera market to a company like GoPro, you know, mm, with, yeah. a, with, with an insurgent uh, founder obsessed about photographing uh, sports experiences. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Chris Zook in just a moment. Well, this is a segment that we call Marketing Mythbusters. We used to call it something else, but Kula, you came up with a name. I did come up with a name. And it's an awesome segment. It's backed by popular demand. We like test ran it for a few episodes, and now people are like, bring back Kula. Well, I'm also taking JJ's job, so this works out great. <laughs> Slowly but surely. <laughs> Don't do that, though, because we did this episode where he talked about being an Enneagram 2, and if you wrong him, he oh, will take you down. JJ, the helper. Okay, but the point of this segment in the podcast is to give some really practical marketing advice, mostly about websites. So Kula is in our facilitator division. If people call us, companies almost every week bring us in to facilitate a day and a half workshop where they clarify their message. And then usually you put up their website and you do some critique. And a lot of these companies are making the exact same mistakes. So the myth that we want to focus on this week is what? 
The myth we're focusing on is that customer testimonials should talk about how great your company is to work with. They shouldn't? They should not, Don, and I'll tell you why. (laughs) Why shouldn't they? So really strong and compelling customer testimonials actually capture the transformation that you help your customers experience. Right, so so instead of like, I really loved Acme Feed and Seed, the people there are so nice, and it's such a great company, and it smells so much like chicken manure (laughs) when I walk in, and I love chicken. It should say what? While that is probably true about Acme (laughs) Feed and Seed, a better customer testimonial would actually capture what that person was struggling with when they walked in the door of Acme Feed and Seed. So what was their problem that they're trying to resolve by walking in the door? Right. My chickens were just not as healthy as they should be, and I knew I was losing money. But I went to Acme Feed and Seed, and now... So you positioned Acme Feed and Seed as a solution to that problem? Right. That's the second piece of it. And then the third piece of a really great customer testimonial is that you want to show your other potential customers what their life looks like now. So as a result of having resolved that problem, Mm -hmm. how much better is that person's life because they did business with you? Okay, so the three parts of the perfect customer testimonial are what? One? The problem that they were struggling with. And then two, the product. The product, the solution. And then the third would be success. Well, the obvious question is, how do you get a customer to say this? So how you get a customer to say this is you can actually actually ask them questions that prompt them to answer in a way that- What were you struggling with? Right. Yeah. So you literally would just ask a customer, hey, what what were you struggling with when you came to our brand? What problem did you need resolved? What need did you have? What product did you buy that solved the problem? Mm -hmm. How does life look now? Yep, exactly. Those three questions. Super what simple. What were you struggling with? What product did you buy that solved the problem? What does your life look like now? And then I usually go to the customer and say, hey, it's been a while, but I usually say, hey, can we say this? Can I edit this down? Can I? The other thing about customer testimonials, especially on websites, they should be short. They should be short. It well, should be scannable. It should be scannable. And also, these glowing testimonials, people talk about how great you are, staying in line with the story brand framework makes the brand the hero. Right. And, and you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. You want the customer to be the hero. Correct. It's their story that matters. Exactly. By the way, how many do you need? I mean, you don't need many, right? How many do you need? Three. Three. Yeah, any more than three, you're talking about yourself too much. Exactly. Because they're just wanting to check off in the back of their brain this like, okay, these people know what they're doing. Right. And they've helped other people get where they want to be and they can help me too. Cool. I like this marketing Mythbuster segment. It's great. It's great. Kula, thanks for coming on. Of course. Kula Callahan, everybody. Okay, listen, if you want to be live in the room with Kula or one of our facilitators, you can't promise Kula, but if you want to be in the live in the room with one of our facilitators, you want to bring in a facilitator for just your company, go to storybrand.com slash private workshop. That's storybrand.com slash private workshop and bring somebody in to help you clarify your message over a day and a half and then put your website up on a giant screen and Kula or the like will rip it apart and you'll get all sorts of myths busted in that environment. Also, if you just want to come to Nashville, and spend time with 50 other business leaders who are clarifying their message, learning to create great websites, great marketing collateral, great email campaigns, all that stuff. Because they have a clear message, go to storybrand.com and register for our next workshop. You're not going to get this done until you take time, clear your brain, clarify your message. But think about how much more money you will make when people finally understand you. Do it today. For a private workshop, storybrand.com slash private workshop. And for our live workshop, storybrand.com, and you can register there. We'll see you soon.
you talk about Oberoi Hotels, you say in your book to maintain a personal connection with each customer, the staff members meet nightly to go over the next day's arrival list and to review each new guest's history and preferences. Now, anybody who's ever stayed at a hotel knows that that doesn't happen in a lot of hotels. I mean, you arrive and you know that nobody met the night before to talk about you. And uh, that's a, a huge difference and actually made a difference in my company because we began to print out lists of the 50 or so individuals who were going to show up for one of our marketing workshops along with their picture and the biggest fear they had or challenge they had as it related to marketing. So everybody who was going to be at that workshop from a staff perspective would read all 50 of these little biographies and know their, their fear and their challenge so that we could actually have that in mind when we interacted with them over the next two days. And the, the reviews that we got for that workshop, they've always been very high, but the reviews that we got for that workshop were higher than I think anyone we'd ever done before. And I attribute that to exactly what you're talking about, this frontline mentality. Yeah, I think you know when, when customers move from people that you know by name, which is in- inevitable, to numbers on a sheet of paper, and then to manipulated numbers that pass through the filters of market research departments, you know, you, you really need to do something to get yourself back. When Frank Blake, who turned around Home Depot based on uh, rejuvenating its front line after the company's stock price had dropped 75%, you know, really began going back to, you know, the details of the business at the front line. And he wondered why it had decayed. And he, one of the indicators he told me he found he looked at the uh, top 15 or 20 senior executives on his team around him and their calendars, and he found that no one had spent a day in a store. Now, mind you, Home Depot wow. is right, stores yeah. in months. And, and uh, he began, you know, it's one of his first things was to decree that, at least indefinitely, you know, everybody had to work for a full day in a store, stocking or checking out or, you know, in the back room or just serving customers. And he said that began to change enormously alone the dialogue in the management meetings and uh, the sense of connectedness with the people running the stores. Well, that's amazing. Well, what, what's the third aspect? You talk about the owner's mindset. What do you mean by the owner's mindset? Just like every founder is in touch with the details, every founder also views their business as their baby and has enormous sense of personal responsibility for the employees that are gathered around them, for solving problems quickly, for you know a paranoia to attack issues and resolve blockages to progress as quickly as fast as possible. And it really is about a distaste for bureaucracy, a distaste for complexity that is unnecessary, and a fear of becoming slow. And you know that's a very powerful thing. It's the essence of private equity. You know you see all the time private equity firms purchasing non-core divisions from very, very large corporates, conglomerates, and rejuvenating them by giving the management some skin in the game, by making the committees smaller, by making the board completely consist of owners, not professional board sitters. And, you know, that makes an enormous difference. And so for us, what we referred to as the owner's mindset was really that. It was a tendency of people on their own to take responsibility and be obsessed with acting speedily. One of my partners, for example, did a, an, an examination just uh, over the last year of 20 large companies where they allowed him to study the calendars of middle managers 
like one or two layers down from the CEO. And what he found is that on average now, nearly three and a half days were devoted to large group, mostly internal meetings and uh, to email and to large conference calls. And so it meant that on average, these managers, not until sometime on Thursday, uh, late Thursday morning, they, they would actually have the time to go out into the field and meet with customers and suppliers and, and the people who are doing the work. Hmm. And when you begin to create that kind of sort of ossified managerial class, spending most of the time internally like that, you really become vulnerable to faster, younger competitors who aren't that way. I think my favorite quote from your book one, because I always thought it was a flaw of mine, and you let me know that it was actually it was actually an asset, is this. They abhor complexity, bureaucracy, and anything that gets in the way of the clean execution of strategy. They are obsessed with the details of the business and celebrate the employees at the front line who deal directly with customers. Together, these attitudes and behaviors constitute a frame of mind that is one of the great and most undervalued secrets of business success. And of course, it's called the founder's mentality. I don't have investors. I don't have partners. I don't do board meetings. And it's not because I'm not willing to do those things. I think there's some strength to those things. But it's because they just slow everything down. And in this age, you can't afford to go that slow. That was just unbelievably freeing for me, except you know, this year we'll probably cross $5 million. We're only a few years old. As the company gets bigger, that gets more difficult. What do you do when your company is not $5 million, but $500 million? How do you detest bureaucracy and keep the company agile and on the balls of its feet when you're dealing with a, an organization that, that's that big? You know, there are many, many things that, uh, that people do all the way up to, you know, not even $500 million, but, you know, $50 billion. I was struck by Michael Dell's comment when he took Dell private again which was that he wanted to create the conditions of the largest startup in the history of the world. Do you think that's why he did it? Because he sensed this stuff intuitively, that the organization was getting away from what you're calling the founder's mentality and it was hurting the organization? Is that why he, he took the company back private? Yeah, I mean, Michael was the person who, who came with, who was very kind enough uh, at the World Economic Forum at Davos a couple of years ago, a little over a year ago, to be with me as my co-speaker when we launched the book and mm. to talk about the ideas. And that was a little bit after Dell had gone private and bought EMC in the largest tech transaction. And so I think there are a couple of reasons. Number one, I think that he felt that he wanted to restructure the strategy of the company and that he was doing that beholden to quarterly earnings and analysts that he had to answer to every day. Uh, he would never have been able to do things like maybe buy, you know, merge with EMC. Uh, analysts would have constantly wanted to know how in detail that was going to pay off immediately, as opposed to allowing him to take that chance. You know, second, he wanted to speed the decisions in the company. And so he actually reduced the size of even the board of directors to a very small number of people, like four or five, from what it had to be as a public board, which must have had 15 and maybe 10 outside directors. Now, everybody on the board are the private equity owners or Michael, who's the primary owner, they're all owners. And they said they're amazing how fast they decide things. Well, yeah. And he told me that since going private, there's been a byproduct, which is that the internal measure of employee satisfaction and loyalty, so-called net promoter score, has actually gone up to the highest that it's ever been. So, you know, there are a number of byproducts to this. One, allowing him to take bolder decisions 
and not be beholden to quarterly earnings. Number two, his ability to make faster decisions with small boards of owners. Number three, ability to you know reconnect the energy of the old days of Dell in the 90s back into the employees. And that clearly has worked. So there are just many, many benefits. You know, one phrase that runs throughout the book is the phrase that complexity is the silent killer of profitable growth. Yeah, and, you know, another thing that you can do in a company's organizations of any size is to comb through all the processes, all the product lines, all the R&D projects that you have going on, all the extraneous assets, and just constantly ask yourself, all the departments, ask yourself what you can possibly do without. You know, some of the companies, the big companies that, that most have the an owner's mindset you know, are those that actually go through processes of uh, periodically of actually zero basing everything in the company and sort of re-justifying it. And I think that's very powerful, too. I think our listeners are in. I mean, if you haven't read this book, like I said, it's probably been a couple of years since I've read a business book that has been this impactful on both me as a leader and what I do in my day-to-day job running this company. Give us, though, before we kind of end this interview, give us two or three things that we can do right now to return to a founder's mentality. You already talked about analyzing the whole company and seeing what we can get rid of in order to streamline uh, the organization. Is there anything else? Yeah, you know, just just a few things that uh, I, I think there are many, many things in the book and on the website, foundersmentality.com that we've cataloged that pretty much any leader can use to try to renew their organization. But if I were to to just list a few ideas, you know, one would be that, you know, when you're trying to execute a strategy, there are a number of ways to do it. You can try to do it everywhere at once, like introducing a new product into uh, China or something, or you can actually try to do it in a way that draws the leaders much, much closer to the front line and actually create almost super pilot projects. So if you're in-house, you know, AB InBev, and you're entering China with Budweiser, you can either fill all your distribution centers everywhere, advertise on a national basis, have the whole sales force trained, or you can pick two cities and six bars and say, how do we get people to drink Budweiser? What are the detailed things we have to do? Hmm. So we call those micro battles. That's number one. You know, second thing you can do is just to constantly talk about and think about how time is used. You know, time is the ultimate asset of senior executives. And, you know, I think it's very important to to ask people how often they are out with the customer, in the factories, with the frontline employees, and to try to make sure that that's at least uh, 50% of their total time. And to talk about it, to begin meetings with discussions of customers by name not just referring to them as, as numbers. Mm, yeah. You know, I think you can also ask yourself at a very simple level, what is our insurgent mission? And what are the two or three very, very spiky capabilities that make us special? You know, if you think of any company that you really, really respect, and, you know, you can always find, you know, take Nike, uh, yeah. you know, the brand, performance, the shoes, and linkage to the top athletes. So they have eight out of the last 10 uh, basketball MVPs are Nike athletes. You know, that's very powerful. Ask yourself, what are, what are your spikes? And, and does everyone in your company know your insurgent mission? Or, you know, you can often reinforce that with founder stories. Very often, there are many, many lost founder stories 
that you can rejuvenate. And, you know, for example, when Bob Iger went back to Disney and did such an unbelievable job of rejuvenating Disney and rebuilding its focus around its original heritage uh, by buying Pixar and doing so many other things, you know, I think that's another, that's an example of, uh, of that. The renewal of Lego, which is mm-hmm. an amazing yeah. example of shrinking to grow, was also one of bringing back the original principles and uh, ideas of creative play of the founder. So those are five or six, you know, just different angles of attack on the business. And as I say, the book catalogs just dozens of them. Yeah. Well, it's a fantastic book, Chris, and I'm so grateful for the research that you did and the time you took to write it. The book is called The Founder's Mentality, out by Harvard Business, and uh, you can learn more, of course, at foundersmentality.com. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me on. Our company has benefited huge from Chris Zook and have already started applying some of the things he talked about in the interview. And if you would like a tool to help you begin applying some of this right now, go to buildingastorybrand.com slash worksheet and you're going to get some questions and some things to think through to be able to start applying this to your business right now. So go to buildingastorybrand.com slash worksheet. That's buildingastorybrand.com slash worksheet. Good stuff. Yes. You know, when you start something, you have that passion. Yeah. He's just got this, like, uh, tangible, structured way of returning to that passion. Yeah. Of remembering what got you there. Yep. Right? One of the best business books. If you haven't picked it up, go get it. The Founder's Mentality. It's fantastic. JJ, next week, yeah, we're going to make you cry. <laughs> that's not hard. It's the- <laughs> <laughs> let's just be honest. Let's, let's just be honest. That is not a difficult thing. I've watched some of the clips that we have in our workshops. Yeah. 500 times. And oh, the, you mean like the commercials? The that commercials or yeah. like video clips of different things. And oh, if yeah, me I too. am tired. I will cry every time. That Procter and Gamble commercial about moms. Yes, <laughs> you've not been to the workshop. That's, <laughs> That's a part like, of our goal. Yeah, <laughs> we literally have a secret scoreboard you don't know about, and we count, we count <laughs> we how many times know. we can make you no, cry we don't do in that. our workshop. We don't do that because I would. <laughs> we do lose, now because that's a yeah, good idea. It kind of is, but <laughs> I have. I would have to keep track of myself because even now, like when we play the whiskey ad, I cry. Is the one out of time. South Africa? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Oh, that gets me. I watch people. I watch them. I watch so do them I. Notes. I'll like turn, like I kind of, but I will turn away because I actually will get tears in my eyes. It's always like the guys, because we, occasionally we have like the NFL guys come through. Yeah. We've had some like, not Navy SEALs, but there was like an Army Ranger who's uh-huh. in Black Hawk <laughs> yes, Down. Yeah. But, like the toughest guys. Yeah. And I always like to call on them right when we're done with that commercial. <laughs> what did you think, Jason? <laughs> tears in their eyes. Yes. No. I, yeah. So. Getting me to cry is not really that hard. All right. Well, we're going to do it next. (laughs) We're going to do that next episode because Juliet Funt is Uh our guest. She has an organization called White Space. Uh She talks about the damage that happens when you don't actually take time to think because we're so busy. We're on our phones. When you don't take time to put your heels up on the desk and lean back and look out at the river, you're losing. You're losing money. You're losing productivity. Productivity. You're mm-hmm. losing health. Yeah. And she tells some stories about what this is costing that are pretty tough. I'm going to play you a little clip from the interview. I'm <laughs> yeah. not going to play that. We're going to make you cry this week. We're no, going to make, make you cry next, next week. Yes. <laughs> you just be ready. Get your tissues, people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, here's a little clip from my interview with Juliet Font. 
We pay a price for the pace and cadence that gets absorbed by our bodies at work and then we bring it home. Because that sense of rushing and pushing and distraction mm -hmm. and cell phone checking, it's just not so easy to turn it on and off. So you walk in the door and the people that love you have been waiting with great anticipation or the dog that loves you or the house that's peaceful for you has been waiting to greet you. And it's really, really difficult to all of a sudden walk across a threshold and become quiet and present. And so what we do, most of us with loved ones, is we pretend to be present. So we walk in and we have a big smile on our face right. and we say hello. But be right behind our eyes, there is this giant machine still grinding with mm. projects and to-dos and things in the inbox. And it's just impossible to turn it off. So when we learn to practice white space at work, what happens is we become a little bit more comfortable in the pause. We have a little bit more ability to lean into it at home. Anyway, she's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she's good. She knows her stuff. Okay, well, another great episode of Building a Story Brand in the can. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to make you cry.